And please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Isaiah, the 44th chapter. We'll take a break from our series in Luke this morning as we do celebrate baptism and the covenant of communicant membership. And this text speaks of both. And so it is fitting to consider it as we look upon these ordinances uh, that we celebrate today by faith, seeing beyond uh, the signs here to the realities that they signify. And so Isaiah chapter 44, we'll read the first five verses. Let us hear once again the word of the living God. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. And I'll read verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray for the preaching. O holy God of heaven. What great and precious promises are found in the word of God. And for our weak and feeble faith, not only do you call us to preach the word, but also to administer the sacraments as signs and seals of the great promises found in the covenant that our weak and faltering faith may lay hold of them. For as we say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, the preached word and the sacraments come to us now to bolster our faith in God. We pray for the minister who preaches that he would be faithful to preach the word in such a way the sacrament would be illuminated to our minds and our hearts, that the Spirit's work would be present in the preaching of the word and the people of God would leave having encountered God by the Holy Spirit. And to those ends, we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that the faith of the congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to look upon a baptism by faith in what it portends portends, is to be filled with great joy, undoubtedly. Um, Not a sentimental joy, which is often the case, especially when we see a child baptized or a person baptized. There is a kind of sentimentality that we can often have. But we are to have a deeply spiritual, a deep abiding joy. After all, the Holy Ghost comes to bring us the joy of God as we see spiritual realities present before us. Great joy that transcends mere sentimentality. For to look on these waters and what they signify by understanding and faith is to see a picture of the Father and Son Pouring out from heaven the Holy Spirit on all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing the promise of Christ that such will be filled. That our desolate souls, if we hunger for Him, we see a tangible picture of that in the waters poured today, that He will fill us. God Himself coming down to comfort us in the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. And as we see the membership covenant taken by another family, we see the church being built and knit by the Holy Spirit who binds us together as the people of God. By knowledge and faith, we see the gospel invitation itself in the waters. And we recognize how great a promise it is. Just as Jesus cried at the feast in John 7, If any man thirsts, Let him come unto me and drink. As the very ending of the Bible says, let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. 
In the waters poured out on the head of the child, we remember Christ's word to Nicodemus as well. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we remember that these waters themselves don't save. The child must be born again, but by faith in the promises of God to be a God to us and our children. Our anticipation and expectation is God will come to this child. And in faith, we see this blessed promise of the Spirit poured out in our text as applying to our children. And the waters of baptism then are our expression of faith in God who works in families. But the child must possess by faith what the waters signify. He must be born again. And for you here with faith in the Lord who have saving faith, who have been in a wilderness land the last six days from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, by faith you see that the Spirit is able to fill your dry and thirsty soul. The promise is here in both the Word today and the sacrament. To see the Spirit as His name Comforter signifies will give you every comfort for God if you will go to Him. And you seeing it will remember the promise of Christ which then implores you to pray. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? All these things are here for faith to lay hold of. These are the things of great and deep abiding joy and not sentimentality. The promises of God pictured for us in the sacrament, but found in the word of God. So this morning, as we baptize a child and receive a family into membership, we come to see the Spirit's work preached from Isaiah 44 and to praise him for it. Our theme being the comfort of the Holy Ghost poured out. The comfort of the Holy Ghost poured out. And we'll consider it under three heads this morning, found on your outline. First is the promise. Second is your children. Third is those afar off. Now, boys and girls, you might say, well, that seems very similar to another word that we see in the Bible from Acts chapter 2. You might remember this from Peter's sermon preached in Acts 2, 38, 39. At Pentecost, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What does he then say? For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. You will see that promise of the Holy Ghost to us, our children, and those afar off here in Isaiah 44, that he will be given and he will call. Well then, our First heading then is the promise, to know the promise. This is where we will spend most of our time. For a bit of context, as uh, we are thrust into the midst of Isaiah's prophecy and haven't considered the previous 43 chapters, uh, in the prior chapter, I'll just summarize, the Lord complained against his people. Most grievously in Isaiah 43, verse 22, and you read these dreadful words, Thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. I believe I will likely preach on that text soon, God willing, because it does speak of the great evil in our heart, that we are often weary of God, which ought never be, this most blessed being. And the Lord showed in that chapter, this is why they were in captivity, why he had given them over to the curse. At the end of chapter 43, you will find uh, God saying, because of their transgressions and their abandonment of God, therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. And it's in view of this curse, uh, this exile that God's people faced, that we've even been reading boys and girls of in the book of Daniel, that we open this chapter with. And you would think then this chapter would be full then of woe and curse and God's threatenings furthermore upon a people who are so wayward, who had been wearied of the only one we ought never weary of. But what do you find instead? A great promise that though they have sinned so greatly against God, he would bring them redemption and blot out their transgressions for his own sake. This is our gracious God that we behold. He has often and consistently said that he will never give up his people to total destruction, 
He chastises his people, but he will never destroy them completely. You remember Hosea 11, the heart of the Lord. How shall I give thee up? He asks his people. And that's why Christ is given to us. Because we are great sinners, but he says to his people, how shall I give thee up? And he gives himself to us in Jesus Christ, saving us from all of our sins, all of our waywardness. And so, in the 44th chapter, we find of Isaiah, great and precious promises of redemption. Uh, The people of God, though in exile and chastised, would flourish one day. And how does God say it will happen? By his Holy Spirit poured out upon his desolate people. Now as this text opens, the Lord calls his people by a variety of names. And in these varied names, we discover his relationship to us. And these names proclaim one singular truth, that we are in a special and covenantal bond with the Lord, which he himself has sworn to uphold. And because of his covenant relationship, He ever stands in a bond where He will save us, His people. And He will maintain a relationship with us and our children. And He will ingather innumerable others into His church. Because of this covenant relationship, we have a great and tremendous assurance that though we are unfaithful so often, God is faithful. And God will save. That salvation is of the Lord and not of men just as we were reminded in the other sacrament, which is often called the second sacrament in the Lord's Supper, we have the shed blood of the Redeemer. And what does it point us to? This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Itself testifying of the covenant realities that we are saved by His blood because He is faithful to us. It was required that the blood of God be shed. And so God sheds His blood in the incarnation, taking on a human nature. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. So, with the covenant before you, in the first two verses, we find God call his people by three names. Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Twice, you note, he says, I have chosen. He speaks of corporate election here, as he speaks of a group of people that he has chosen for himself. God's people, as a people, and not just individually, are chosen covenantally. Now, you grasp this intuitively, I think, when we speak of God's ancient people, the Jews. How often do you say, these are God's chosen people? We talk of the Jews that way. But the New Testament speaks the same way of God's people in every era, including in the church. 1 Peter 2.9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church itself, the people of God, are covenantally chosen by God just the same. Because the truth is there's one people of God, right? Uh, The church is composed of both Jews and Gentiles, Galatians 3.28, and it continues today as the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. And so everything here applies to the church of Jesus Christ, which was under age, as we say, in the book of Isaiah amongst the Jews. But uh, remember what First Peter said, we are a peculiar people, a particular people, a chosen people, chosen by God in Christ. So these three names, having that covenant understanding. Let's begin with Jacob. Boys and girls, you remember this is Abraham's grandson, don't you? Abraham was called the friend of God. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And that's just in Isaiah 41, verse 8, a couple chapters back. You remember to Abraham was a covenant promise given, a part of the covenant of grace, that in his seed all the nations would be blessed. And that covenant line of descent went from Isaac to Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, you remember, boys and girls, what Jacob's name meant? It meant supplanter, right? He grabs the heel of Esau. He supplants his elder brother Esau. What do we remember of his life before he encounters God? A great deceiver. Wasn't he? He was a great deceiver and a scoundrel. He was a great sinner. Yet the promises of the covenant 
to Abraham were greater than Jacob's sins. And this is the wonderful blessing of being in covenant with God. That as great as our sins are, God's grace in Christ are even greater. God's promises are sure. And Jacob found mercy and grace from God to cover all his sins. And after he had wrestled with God, you remember he was given a new name, Israel. Meaning what? A prince of God or he that prevails with God or has power with God. And so when we are called as the church, the Israel of God, we remember this as part of our name, isn't it? A prince of God or he that prevails with God. Now, maybe then you are familiar with these covenantal names of Jacob and Israel. But here God's people are called a third, Jeshurun, which is another name for Jacob. It's not often used in the Bible, but the meaning is the upright one or straight. Now, that's a remarkable thing for a man who is a scoundrel, isn't it? That God would see him as upright and straight. This is a testimony again of God's grace, isn't it? to turn a crooked man, a scoundrel, into one that he sees through Christ as upright and as straight. As far as east is from the west, he has removed his transgressions. Now, this name was perhaps most memorably used in Deuteronomy 33, 26 and 27. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help and in his excellency on the sky, And you probably have this verse memorized. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Who is it that turns Jacob into Jeshurun? It is the eternal God whose everlasting arms lift us up out of the dunghill and move us into any state of salvation. So in the three names of Isaiah 44, we find our covenantal identification. That God, by way of the covenant of grace, takes great sinners and makes them upright ones in his eyes. To which we say with Deuteronomy 33, as we are told to say, there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun. Who can do such a thing? To take an unclean thing and make a clean thing out of it by his Holy Spirit. Who is our help? The everlasting arms that bear us up as a man. You're going to see a man bring his son. As a man bears up his son, the word of God says, the Lord bears us up. And in baptism, as we think on the covenant, we see a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. We see a sign that in wrath, God remembers mercy, Habakkuk 3.2. A God who keeps covenant with his people so that that is the only reason why the church endures today. Not because we are so righteous and strong and powerful, but because God is faithful. Even that the church is given her children. Why? Because of God's covenant faithfulness. Even a covenant child being born into a Christian home testifies to us that God is faithful to give us increase in this way. Well, that takes us to his great words of comfort in verse 2. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeserin, whom I have chosen. He tells his people who are desolate in exile, fear not. He points them to himself. And he says to the people of God, I have formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Whenever a covenant child is born, this is a wonderful place to look. We see a picture of us when we see a child come out of the womb. We see a picture of the church, that God has formed the church in a place that is very much like a womb. He has made us who are once not a people, the people of God. And he has formed us in himself just as he forms every child physically in the womb, so too he has made us as a people. And when he sees, when he shows us that he has formed us in the womb as a people, what are we to consider in that? You think of the picture of the womb. You know, this is why abortion is so heinous, isn't it? Because the womb is a place of love. The womb is a place of safety. The womb is a place of refuge and care and nurture where one gives to another, the mother giving to the child, doesn't she, of her own self. And so in the same way, the Lord says, I have formed thee from the womb, and I will help thee, just as a mother helps her child. 
When you see a nursing mother, then you see God, in a sense, in a sense, nursing and nurturing us. Don't you? There is tenderness in that. And you cannot even help but remember our Savior in these things, can you? Jesus Christ, true Israel, conceived where? In the womb of the Virgin Mary and by the power, and this is coming into now our text, especially by the power of the Holy Ghost. God himself took on a human nature in a human womb. Remarkable things to meditate on. And so what a rich text this is to ponder and meditate on when a child is baptized. And so that said, the Lord speaks this all as a word of comfort to a people that he has chastised. It's almost like he takes the child that he has spanked and says, Fear not, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and I will always be faithful. I chastise for thy sin, but I will always love thee. He encourages then in this text to remember that his anger endureth for a moment, but in his favor is life. Psalm 30, verse 5. Even as we watch the church today endure great chastisement, and we'd be blind to not see it, a great chastisement for our many sins, he consoles us in this text and says, Fear not, look to me as thine help. Do not weary of me, but seek after me. So in verse 2, you find that consolation. Fear not, O Jacob, and thou Jeserin. And this consoling command, what we have heard thus far is it's not baseless. It's not a there, there, it'll be all right. Kind of that platitude that we often give people. It's okay. It'll be okay. Whether or not it will be okay. But he says, fear not, because he grounds it all in his covenant commitment. He says, because I cannot help but be faithful. You fear not, because it's not on you, it's on me. The salvation is of the Lord, not on you. And if a people will endure, it is not their faithfulness, it is mine to them. I am committed to you. How often has the Lord Jesus consoled us with words like this, fear not, little flock. He has consoled us because it is all on Christ, isn't it? Why do we not fear? It's because all of our salvation is on Him. All of our security is in Him. All of our blessedness is in Him. And so, beloved, if you are in Christ, you must ever console yourself. What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. Psalm 56, verse 3. And as we consider baptism today, and as I trust, Christian, you have been baptized, consider that you are baptized And you must remember in your baptism Christ's own promises. And that is a way that we are told to, and this is the older language, improve our baptism by remembering the precious promises of God that I have been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. These three being one, God, have made an eternal and everlasting covenant in Christ to be mine. And if I have faith in Him, that covenant I know is sure and steadfast because even my faith is a gift of God out of the covenant He has made. You know, this consolation, as we think on the Holy Spirit in this text, is not only found in a legal kind of construct. Now is it? As if there's a, a piece of paper somewhere that the Lord has in which you say, okay, I will look on that piece of paper. Now, you can consider the word of God itself as the covenant book where these promises are found. But he says, not only is the the book of the covenant given to you, but the book of the covenant also as well with the person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Now here is the great promise for you to lay hold of today. A promise in God's mercy that he will show soon, visibly in the pouring of water upon the head, that he will pour out his Holy Spirit upon all those who are thirsty. As you think of Christ's own promise to fill those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That he will bring floods here, it says, uh, to the dry ground of your parched soul. Consider the promise of our text and its fulfillment then. You, you know these words. 
in a different way in the New Testament, don't you? How Christ Himself apprehends this word in John 7. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What's the parenthetical note by the Holy Spirit Himself? But this spake He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. See, it's the same word, isn't it? Isaiah 44, John 7, you see the fulfillment of these things in Christ. And so if your soul is parched and thirsty today, what shall you do? Should you not hear the invitation of the Lord? If any man thirst, any man, any woman, any child, you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, there is a, a, a famished nature to your soul, especially as you look on your own sin. He says, come unto me and drink, and I will fill you with my spirit. This is an open and hearty invitation. It doesn't matter what sins you have committed, friend. If any man thirst, he goes to the feast and he cries out to all, you need me. Whether you're apart from Christ today and your life is as those dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, or you are in Christ but are spiritually parched because you have dwelt in tents of wickedness, He says, fear not, come unto me and I will in no wise cast you out. Come and take your fill and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And you notice this here. Here in Isaiah 44, it is a flood. In John 7, it is rivers. It's not a trickle, but it is plenteous for even the chief of sinners. And all of this is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit in our text, which I want to spend some time meditating on. You know, in John 14, Christ memorably says that the Holy Ghost is the comforter. And he says this to his disciples when he is about to leave them, when he is about to ascend, when they are distraught at the thought that Christ will not be with them bodily on the earth. And he says, I will not leave you comfortless. You will have the Spirit. And this is the Holy Spirit's personal property to eternally proceed from Father and Son. To proceed. He comes. He's given. He's given as a gift. His appropriations of the Trinity's work are to apply to us all of God's benefits. You know, the external works of the Trinity, which are indivisible, are in accord with their personal properties, as we've seen in the membership class um, those of you who've gone through it, right? We call these divine appropriations. The Father initiates, the Son executes, and the Spirit applies. This is the, the work of the Trinity as we see these reflect their personal properties. And, and in a sense, and you have to understand the sense in which this is given, the Spirit perfects the works of the Trinity. It reflects what distinguishes the persons of the Godhead. For instance, I'll give you an example. In the work of redemption, the Father purposes to save a people. He initiates. The Son sheds His blood and gives His life to purchase us. He executes. And the Spirit then takes the blood of Christ as He is poured out on our soul and applies the blood, gives us faith, covers us and cleanses us, calls us in time in effectual calling to the Lord Himself. He applies. In fact, you can look at your Bible in a, in a certain sort of way as a revelation of the Trinity. In the Old Testament, it is mostly the Father that you see. In the Gospels, it's mostly the Son. And now in this time after Pentecost, it is the Spirit's work that you see especially. Having that same pattern, initiation, purchasing, and application. Beautiful way to see the Trinity at work, even though their works are inseparable and all their works are truly the work of God. Each person is said to appropriate according to their personal properties. And so, though in baptism we see the Spirit poured out, we are baptized into the singular name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's wonderful then if you would see the Spirit's work. Uh, Baptism, though it's connected especially with the Holy Spirit, is the work of the triune God. Well, we can have a discourse on Trinitarian theology another time. But I would simply say this, the Holy Spirit then who perfects the works of the Trinity, works through outward and ordinary means of grace. 
Or what are they, boys and girls? You know them. The word of God, the two sacraments in prayer. This is how he works. That is God's own design. Now, if we would remember that, and we would lean on that by faith, we would seek him in these ordinances. Knowing that we're not just uh, seeking a bare word, we're not seeking bare water, we're not seeking bare utterances that we have, but we are seeking the Holy Spirit in all these ordinances. After all, who helps you pray? It's the Holy Spirit. Who is it that illuminates us? Who has inspired the word of God itself? It is the Holy Spirit. Who is it that we see especially in the sacraments? It is the Holy Spirit perfecting the works of God. Now, if you would remember that, how you would, in the ordinances, by faith, appropriate for yourself the works of God, the ministry of God to you. You know, it's not bare Bible reading. It's not listening to a man go on and on for an hour here. It is appropriating God himself by faith. This is why prayer is sweet. You are not to divorce the ordinances from the Blessed Trinity. We're often so dry and parched when we come to them, we don't even want to go to his ordinances because our faith does not anticipate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by the Spirit working in them. You know, um, we recently, after the Lord's Supper, had a time of spiritual meditation, and briefly we considered Revelation 22.1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this is the personal properties of the Holy Spirit, right? Proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. He is as um, water of life, clear as crystal, pure river. This is what Jesus has said. This is what you see here in our text. And he comes to give us refreshment. He comes to cleanse us. These are the things that are signified in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, taking all the blessed um, benefits of God the Father and God the Son and coming down from the throne, if we would apprehend him by faith, purifying us. He is that river that makes us glad. In Psalm 46, 4, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the what? City of God, meaning the church. All these things are tied together. And so by faith, Think on the ordinances then, and this is a help for your faith, as drinking pure and clean and crystal water by the Holy Spirit. Blessed Trinity, feeding your parched and dry soul. Well, the baptism then represents the great pouring of the Holy Spirit, which is why you find baptism so profoundly linked to Pentecost, don't you? Right? the pouring of the Holy Spirit that causes the church to prosper and grow, and why we pray for the Holy Spirit in revival. Wilt thou not revive us again? How does it happen? The pouring of the Holy Spirit, even as we see it in this text. And that's what we're going to consider in our final two heads. That God would revive the church by his Spirit from two places. Our covenant children first, and second, the Gentiles that are afar off. So first, let's consider the revival of the church through the children. Verses three and four speak of the promise of our covenant children being blessed. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring, and they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. Now this is a promise, beloved, given to the seed of believers, to the children of believers, that they will flourish as well-watered grass and willows, growing and thriving, that the Spirit will work in them. That's what that signifies, not literal water, boys and girls, watering grass in that way. That's just a picture which you might see in baptism. But that the Spirit of God is promised to the children of the church. So too our children as grass, right, receives waters from heaven, and grows by it as willows are planted by streams and thrive off of it, the roots uh, planted in and taking in the water. So too the promises our children will receive vitality by the Holy Spirit poured on them. And we know this is by promise. This is God's promise. And it is part of God's covenant from the very beginning. Genesis 17.7 And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. How does it go? To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. The Christian church today must grapple with this. 
Has the Lord changed his mind in that promise? To be a God to us and to our seed. Has he torn away our children from the promise? Has he ripped them away from the promise to be a God to us and our children? Did he, did Christ, when he came down from heaven, say, I am changing these terms? If so, where? Where has he changed these terms, beloved? How cruel it is to say in the New Testament, which is called a better covenant, that there are now no more promises given to our children. What a weird thing that is. We would have to say the Old Testament was better for families then, which is not true. Because Peter, after all, he preached the very same way as the Old Testament preaches. He says in Acts 2, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all those that are afar off which means that we are to embrace the promise of this word for ourselves and our children too. It's the same promise in the New Testament. We baptize this child today. Why? Because of our faith in the precious promises of God, that he has pledged to be God to us and to our children, to pour out his spirit upon them. So what you must never do is see infant baptism as something apart from faith. It's untrue to say it is not, it is a faithless ordinance. Abraham received circumcision after faith as a convert, but he circumcised his household in faith even before they believed. See, this is a sacrament with faith in the promises of God. It is completely and totally moored to faith. Abraham did it in faith that the Holy Spirit would be given to a seed. And so too the parents today present their child in baptism by faith. They believe the promise of God, that God has promised and pledged to be God to them and their seed after them. And they will say to God, thou art no liar. And I believe, even as I pray, help thou mine unbelief. And it's under faith in that promise that the child comes under the water of baptism. They pray, and we will pray, Lord, what these waters signify, you only can bring to pass. Which is how we pray for our children. Not that they're automatically saved, but we pray to God, bring what you have promised to pass. Send thy spirit from father and son into my child's heart. And so we pray for them. And we also, especially as things are difficult and maybe it seems for a season, they're walking away from the Lord. We remember their baptism. These parents will remember this day, the rest of this child's life, as long as they live and plead with God that what these waters signify will come to pass. This is a sign of faith. They will pray that this boy would be convicted of his sin that he would embrace Jesus Christ, that he would seek the cleansing blood of the Lamb, always remembering that the gospel promises for their child. Now, this baptism will not save the child. It will not wash away original sin, but instead it is applied in faith in the covenant promises to children of the covenant. And it will be a means of grace to them if they embrace it by faith, which is why we don't rebaptize those who have been baptized and come to faith later. Why? Because we rejoice that what God has promised has come to pass, that the sign and seal of the covenant has been blessed by the Lord. And when they taste the Lord's Supper for the first time in faith, the second sacrament, we praise God, we parents do, and the church too, that God's promise has come to pass in them. Well, soon after the sermon, you will see baptism by pouring. I will pour water upon the head of the child. And in this very Baptistic part of the country, you might uh, wonder about that. Well, I think the answer as to why we pour has already been touched on in our sermon. But uh, um, let me summarize it for you. We baptize them because they are part of God's covenant. As children of the covenant are holy, they are set apart for God. 1 Corinthians 7.14, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy? We'll consider that tonight as we consider a text on divorce. But in view of this, we find in the New Testament 
that households and not just individuals are baptized. 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul says, I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Acts 16, Paul baptizes Lydia and her household as well as the Philippian jailer's household. In the same way, Abraham had his whole household circumcised in Genesis 17. The reason for this is simple. God's promises haven't changed. His promises haven't changed. And so we baptize our children as part of the household of faith. And it's also why they are here with us today in the assembly. Why Paul, for instance, addresses them directly in the epistles. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Why does he say children in an epistle read to the assembly? Because children are meant to be part of the church. The promises are to the parents and to their children. And this is why preachers address you children. This is why the preaching of the word addresses children specifically. Now, second, why pour on the child? Well, this ancient form of baptism is is quite scriptural. Baptism itself being a picture of the Holy Ghost poured out upon us. You remember when Jesus was baptized, he comes into the Jordan, stands there, and John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as the Holy Spirit comes down, right? What does he do? He, He also pours water on the head. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit descending from heaven as a dove. As Peter preached in Acts 2, taking up Joel's prophecy, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. So all of this is signified in the pouring out of water in baptism. And so if you see old paintings of baptisms, a lot of times what you'll find is that the the person being baptized goes into water, perhaps thigh deep, and the minister baptizing is pouring water upon the head. It signifies this action of the Holy Ghost being poured out, which is often neglected today. And it's also found this promise in verse 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. And that's what we picture. Now, parents then, you know, with all that doctrine behind us, what you have to do when you see the baptism is embrace the promises of God for your children. That is your calling. That is your exercise of faith, is to see the promise here that he is God to us and our children. And if he is already God to you and your child, you are to raise the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is your obligation, as in Matthew 28, to make them a disciple of Christ. You are to point them always to the Lord Jesus Christ. As you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We we tell our children, there is no option for you, child. You are a covenant child. You're born into a Christian family. You are to be a Christian. You tell them what a blessed thing it is that you are born into the household of faith. Don't despise your birthright as Esau did. Embrace it as Jacob, that former scoundrel, did. You say, my child, wrestle with God until you get the victory as Jacob did. And submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, time slipping, even as our children are part of God's promise here, we'll see that the promise extends far beyond them, even to those who are far off, which is what we consider in our final head. The promise to those afar off are in verse 5. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. Here is the expansiveness of God's covenant promise of the new covenant. A prophecy that not just the children of the covenant, those presently called by the name of Jacob, but those who are not presently called by the name of Jacob will be called And they will be called by the name of the God of Jacob. They will surname themselves beautifully by the name of Israel. And so you see here in this text a prophecy and a preview of the totality of the Israel of God. Jew and Gentile both in one church. When we consider then the baptism of converts, we praise God for this promise that the Spirit was poured out to take strangers to the covenant and bring them in. And when we see a minister baptize a person into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, what are we seeing? Them receiving a new surname, having the name of God upon them, 
signifying that the Holy Spirit has come to adopt them into God's own family. Which is why we see that those who are converted, when the Spirit comes into their heart, they cry what? Abba, Father. By the Spirit's adopting work, Romans 8.15. Again, he appropriates the work of the Trinity to bring us to salvation, adopting us into God's own home translating us out of darkness into God's own house and putting God's name upon us such that we have all the rights and privileges of the sons of God having a new surname. We are his, under his protection, under his love, under his care, taken out of the filthiness of the wilderness of sin and made Israel prince of God. All through the work of the Son of God. You who believe, you now call yourself by the name of God of Jacob. And you say, what does it say here? That these who come in will say, I am the Lord's. I am his, and he is mine. And what a glorious thing that is to those who are far off. We who are sinners and far from the promises of God, we who were once not a people but are now made the people of God, brought into God's own house, even as you see that picture in Luke 15 of the prodigal son being given a robe and given a fatted calf, slain, Jesus Christ slain for us. These converts will pledge themselves to be Jehovah's by way of covenanting, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord. This is a pledge taken by hand. So as we receive a family into covenant membership, we will witness them signing uh, the membership covenant, the membership book here with their hand. And though they're associating particularly with our assembly, what they're doing transcends beyond this uh, particular church's membership. Ultimately, what are they saying before God and man? I am the Lord's. I am the Lord's. And that is where my identity is. Not in sin, not my old surname. You know, some of us come from very disreputable families. That's not the name by which you are known anymore, child of God. You are known by the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A new name with no shame. You may have destroyed your name in this world, sinner, but a new name is given unto you where you say, I am the Lord's and no man can bring shame upon you if Christ has taken it away. I am the Lord's. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully puts it this way, that those who are the Lord's testify that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is what it means to say, I am the Lord's. And as we receive a family into our assembly, those who have said, I am the Lord's, we again see the Holy Spirit's work in this. Ephesians 4 says, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The work of one God pictured in church membership, the Father who predestinates us, the Son who purchases us, and the Spirit that binds us together. You know, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus that you don't know where the Spirit comes from. Right? He's like the wind. You can only see his effects. But what a blessed thing it is to see his effects. When you see the baptism, when you see those pledged saying they're the Lord's, what do we do? We say this is the Spirit at work. And we praise God that he is at work here amongst us, brethren. When we see these things, we perceive God is among us of a truth, that he is blowing, and we praise God for it, and we ask for more. 
And that means, finally, friend, if you are here today without faith, you're not in Christ. The Spirit is at work here. The Spirit of God is at work here today, and He is able to give you life-giving faith if you believe on Christ, and He will save you from all your sins. He will take you from all of your wretchedness and put you in the house of God. Call on His name. Be born again. He will cleanse you of every sin and make you part of the people of God. You will have life everlasting and you will never taste hell because you will know if you are in Christ that Christ has tasted hell for you as your substitute. You will know God as your Father as you call on Him. Christ said, if any man thirsts, that excludes none of you here. Come to Him and He will fill you. Whatever sins are yours, give them to the Lamb of God and He will take them away and wash them away and save you and give you eternal life and not just give you precious promises, but give your children as well, should you have them. What a gracious God this is. Why do you stay away from Him? It boggles the mind. And if, Christian, if you thirst for any reason, if your soul is dry and parched, You need to see in the water of baptism the promise. I will pour my spirit on him that is thirsty. Take it by faith and seek to be filled by the Lord today. Well, let us bless God this day that to us our precious promise is given. People of God, we are to be like Abraham, the friend of God, fully persuaded that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. Especially when you think on your children that our children would be blessed and those afar will come, uh, come to the church, come to Christ rather, as well. So in view of those promises, being fully persuaded, let us, let us um, disciple our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and let us seek to evangelize the lost, doing both with the precious promises of God in view. And in so doing, may the Israel of God continue to prosper as Christ builds his church by his spirit. And let us leave this place today after witnessing these things, the Spirit's work, with great joy, praising and blessing God. Amen. Let us arise for prayer, if able. O blessed God, our Father, what precious promises are found in the Word of God. And we pray, Father, that what Thou hast promised, Thou wouldst bring to pass. We say, as we consider our children, some of whom may not presently be walking with the Lord, Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. Call them all to thyself. May none of them be lost, Lord. Give them all saving faith. And to those who are afar off here in our assembly who have never called on the name of the Lord, may this be the day in which you expose them to the great barrenness of their soul, And they cry out in thirst for God that the Lord Jesus Christ would save them. May this be the day they believe, Father. And for those of us who have come to worship today dry and thirsty, may we remember, for we are prone to forget, that only one can fill us and one has promised to fill us if we come in faith. So open our mouths, our spiritual mouths wide now, Lord, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God knowing the love of God in all this, as we cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. Bless us all, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated for a moment, if you would.